something I have a note here I'm supposed to announce, so I better do it because I will have to answer to my wife when I get home if I don't. Um, some of the staff have requested that we do a marriage retreat. And, um, you know, not just my wife and I, but the church. And, um, <clears throat> you know, she's just given up. She just realized it's scarred for life. Um, but uh, basically, we're, we're planning it. We've done this in the past, but not for quite some time. But we're looking at March of 2023 at the Coeur d'Alene Resort. Um, I'll be speaking, and Terry, Nancy, and Clark will be here to do the worship. And so um, if you're interested, you can pre-register without paying any money. We just basically we're taking a poll to see if it's worth the effort because it's a lot of effort. So if you're interested, and plus we can't reserve any any of the facility until we have a fixed number and money attached to that. So anyway, if you're interested, there's a table out in the someplace back there. I think it's over in the by the Fellowship Center, but uh, you can let them know of your intention and pre-register, and then we can go ahead and, and communicate with you further about the details. So, okay, that clear? Honey, did I do okay? Okay. Ah, good, I get to come home again. The history of um, repeatedly tells us that families are the most important institution that exists in the world. That really, quite literally, as families go, so go nations. In fact, it was the late G.K. Chesterton who said of the family, he said, it's the triangle of truism. He said, a father, mother, and child, and it cannot be destroyed. But then he added, it can only, be, it can only destroy those civilizations which disregard it. So no matter how we want to look at it, that basically each of us comes into the world and we're kind of thrown into a boiling pot. And whether we're thoroughly cooked or we're just partly done and raw on the inside depends on the dynamics that take place in this thing that I'm figuratively referring to as your family. And every one of us understands this. Every one of us are sinners who were put into families that were run by sinners. And, and so as a result, we all have to deal with the consequences of a sinful world and even sin within families. And so as we go through life, what we find is we're always trying to manage those dynamics. In fact, they, I was telling my wife the other day, which was somewhat dis disconcerting to me, I said, even now at my age, I'm 72, coming really close to 73, and I find my still sill kind of pawing through the, the litter box of my life and recognizing things that are in me that were the outcroppings or really things that developed in me because of my childhood experiences. And they weren't all bad. I mean, I was fortunate. I had parents who loved me. If they'd liked me, that would have been a plus. But, you know, they, they basically fed me and housed me and, you know, kept me around and didn't make me sleep with a dog every night. But the whole simple fact is that we all have had that journey. None of us grew up in perfect families. And so we kind of get the impact of how families affect us. Now, part of the problem is I love the way the rabbi said that the first 40 years of your life you can blame on your parents, the next 40 years are all on you. And so the simple reality is that at some point you come to a place where you realize the good, the bad, and the ugly, and hopefully you embrace the good things and build on that, and you reject the things that were bad. But none of us can honestly discount how impactful a family is in shaping who we are or how we interact and see the world around us. In fact, the scriptures have a really kind of a daunting statement in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Israel. One of the things he says to them is, God punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And it's interesting because we do find that, for example, families who have a, a, a basically a patriarch who is a criminal, they tend to find that criminality takes about three or four generations for the habit to be broken. And the same thing is true with families that grow up with virtuous parents. So again, the influence is unmistakable, and God's saying it's not just something that is there sociological, it's that's the nature of humanity and human experience. And I say all of this because we're going to talk today about a family, a family that uh, <laughs> even by our modern standards was really dysfunctional. In fact, if you were to look up the name Herod, 
in the dictionary, it would probably have the word dysfunctional immediately after it. I mean, despite the fact that they were one of the wealthiest, most important, powerful, and highly honored families within the Roman Empire at that time, even though they themselves were non-Romans, they were also dangerously dysfunctional. Dangerously dysfunctional. The family was racked and wrecked wrecked by sexual immorality, by incest, by intrigue, betrayal, murder, greed, and just sheer terror. Besides brutally executing thousands, Herod, the founder of this household, Herod the Great, murdered his favorite wife and three of his sons just because he felt there was a possibility that they would try to take over his position. So, I mean, he had a lot of sons. He had at least 13 different wives, so I guess he could spare a few. But these were the ones who were considered to be most prominent. And so when we read about Herod killing the babes of Bethlehem, you have to understand, in terms of the things he did during his reign, that's not even notable. He, he killed, when he built the temple, he hung the, the Roman standard, the Roman eagle, on the wall of the temple, and the Jews were so incensed that they went and pulled it down. He arrested them and took 40 of them and burned them to death in front of the others just to let them know, you don't do this. And that was the whole nature of his kingdom. He was brutal, he was violent, he didn't have any concerns and what's interesting is that one of the men he killed was the grandfather of the two people we read about, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. The family's most memorable because they ruled Israel, but they did it badly and they did it brutally and ruthlessly. And they did it during the times of Jesus and Peter and James and Paul. The New Testament lists over 10 different family members in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, and we find that this is tangled web of people who are always, it seems to be, on the wrong side of every issue. Every one of them, from start to finish, was on the wrong end of the story. The Herod family were, by religion, Jewish, but they were Arabs by ethnicity. They were descendants of Esau, not descendants of Jacob, even though they could be counted in the line of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and there was also Abraham Ishmael, and Ishmael gave birth to a whole line of Arab people today, Midianites and people basically that fill the Middle East. But also Esau became the father of the Edomites, and the Edomites in the time of Jesus were called Idumeans, and the Herod family were descendants of Idumea. They were Edomites. At Herod's death, we find that Rome divided the kingdom amongst his three sons. There was Archelaus, who was given Judea, Antipas, who was given Galilee, that's the guy who John the Baptist stood before, and then there was Philip, who built the city of Caesarea Philippi, east of the Galilee. In lifestyle, they were religiously Jewish, but they were more Roman than most Romans. In practice, they were really just nothing else but pagans. And this was due in large part that they, all of these children were raised in Rome. They were raised in the household of the emperor, and their closest friends in childhood and into adulthood were the royal family. And so they were very highly connected, and they continued to have all sorts of positions of influence throughout their lifetimes because of these relationships. But it got really crazy once Herod died and the kingdom was divided that Philip married his half-sister Herodias, who then divorced him and married her uncle Antipas, who then murdered John the Baptist after being seduced by his stepdaughter Salome. Eventually, Archelaus and Antipas were both deposed, and the new emperor Caligula appointed his close friend, Agrippa I, to be the new king of Judea. Now, this king of Judea, Agrippa I, we read in chapter 12 of Acts, he's the one who executes James the apostle and arrests Peter, who would, after Passover, he was intending to also execute by decapitation. And yet, it was all cut short because he was struck dead by God, we read about in Acts chapter 1 because he took the praise and the worship of men 
and began to act as if he was deified humanity. And so God struck him down, and five days later he passed away. Then his son, Agrippa II, who was still fairly young, was given a small kingdom, an area called Chalcis, east of the Jordan River. And that's where we find him when he comes into our story. He is allowed to call himself by the title of a king. He has the power to oversee what happens in the temple. He's a superintendent of the temple in Jerusalem. And he also is allowed to choose who the high priest is each year. So in terms of the Jewish community, he was very influential, very powerful, very controlling. And following a series of failed marriages, his sister Bernice moved in with him in what many believe was an incestuous relationship. So when we read about Agrippa and coming as Agrippa II coming with his sister Bernice, we have to understand that they're also lovers living together in this relationship. And then the Jewish revolt happened in 66 AD, only about five years after the events we're reading about. The Jews revolted. Herod Agrippa had to flee Jerusalem because they were killing anybody that was associated with the Romans. And he basically kind of slips off the pages of time. His sister Bernice became the mistress of Titus, who was leading the armies of his father Vespasian. Vespasian later would become the emperor, and then future years Titus would become the emperor. But Titus came with the Roman legions into the area, conquered Jerusalem. Well, Bernice became his mistress for the next few years until, of course, he became emperor at the death of his father Vespasian. And then it was not appropriate for a Roman to be married to a non-Roman, and so he divorced her And from that point on, Agrippa and Bernice kind of fade away, living in probably luxurious retirement, but really never having any important role. It's interesting because if you want to put kind of a historical context to somebody like Titus, in destroying Jerusalem and the temple, he acquired a huge amount of gold. Keep in mind that the temple itself was built of stone, but the floors the walls and the ceilings were overlaid with plates of gold. Not gold dust, not gold paint. I mean, we're talking about pounded gold overlaid the entire thing. And so when the temple burned, the, the gold melted and ran down into the stones. And remember Jesus said, not one stone will be left unturned? Well, literally the Roman soldiers went in after the defeat And they had to roll the stones, turn every stone over, and scrape the gold off of it. How much gold was it? We're told, we just discovered just 10 years ago, they found a plaque in the Colosseum in Rome where basically Titus, who built the Colosseum, says he did it with the gold that he had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So it's a really fascinating story from a purely historical perspective. But one we have to understand is their lives were so dark and so dramatic, I've often wondered why it has never been made into a miniseries. I thought, wouldn't this be a great story to tell? And then it occurred to me why nobody's ever done it. And the reason is real simple. There's not one admirable character in the entire family history. There's not one of them that you can point to and say, well, he was a pretty good guy. No, they were all dastardly. (laughs) They were all terrible people. They had all sold themselves to a life of evil. They'd grown up seeing nothing but it. We can only imagine the psychotrauma that must have been there for kids growing up in a home where you realize that your life could be ended by an insane father who might decide that you're a threat to his future. And so you live literally with a reign of terror and fear talking about an abusive home. You see, I can't help and think that this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.19, when he speaks of those who he says their destiny is destruction. Why? Because their God is their stomach, literally their appetites for sensuality. That's what they live for. What they worship is 
consuming and consuming and consuming of all things. Everything around them is kind of like subject to becoming a, a, a victim of a black hole, of, a, of emptiness. The people whose lives have such a depth of emptiness, they have everything in the world and yet they have nothing. And so they seek to suck it in, to fill the void and the vacuum with whatever indulgence, whatever inquirement, with every act or power that they can possibly imagine to satisfy the emptiness. And then he adds to it, he says, their glory is in their shame. Their mind is only on earthly things. In other words, it's a mindset where you only measure meaning by the bookends of birth and death. And that's not an uncommon way of looking at life. Even people who might be viewed as simply moral or good people often are guilty of the same. We only think about, I'm born, and then one day I'm dying, and so I'm going to basically drain out whatever I can in these years that I have upon this planet because they have no thought and certainly, therefore, no hope of anything coming afterwards and certainly no awareness of an ultimate accountability. So it is that they ruled as the kings of, Jew, of the Jews, but John said of them, they were really more like the church of Sardis, of whom Jesus said, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I often think of Psalm 73 where the psalmist Asaph says, I was envious of the wicked. It seems like they've got it made. They've got everything. And you can imagine what it would have been like a Jew growing up in, in Jerusalem or a Roman growing up in Rome. And you see these families who basically have everything you can imagine where you're struggling to keep food on the table. They're just tossing the excess to the dogs. And you think, man, they're so fortunate, they're so lucky. And yet the truth of the matter is that their soul is more ravished and starved than we can even imagine a person even being because they have no truth and no light and no darkness. And as Jews, Herod's family, they had this reputation that they were Jews. I mean, when you looked at their life, they did everything that a Jew was supposed to do. They would have kept the Sabbath they would have gone to the feast. They would, have been, they would only eat kosher. They would have done all those kinds of things. They certainly would have been circumcised, at least the guys. I'm sorry for being so gender specific. But predictably, it was a very generational dysfunctionality that both enabled the family to rise to this place of power and ultimately the same thing that brought them to destruction. Because something we understand about narcissistic, sociopathic, psychopathic personalities, those are somewhat fluid labels, is that they can't help themselves. They always press the envelope until they self-destruct. It's an unavoidable fact of life. I mean, any therapist who's ever worked with people who have these kind of disturbances, these kind of behaviors, and it isn't mental illness. It's rather a choice and a decision. It's something that people choose for their life, usually because it's expressed by people who have severely traumatic childhood like all of these did. But the simple fact is they just keep on pushing the envelope until eventually they will push it right over the cliff. You know, I mean... <laughs> Thelma and Louise are kind of a metaphor for people with these kind of obsessive personalities. They were wealthy as Croesus, but they were the embodiment of Lord Acton's adage where he said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The something I think even in terms of looking at the reference points of our own time in history, you have to understand that these people who often rise to the highest places of power and authority, who are so narcissistic and sociopathic that they have an amazing amount of empathy for themselves, but very to no empathy for other people, they will always push their power to the point where they self-destruct. I was watching a news article of Climate protesters protesting at the headquarters of BlackRock Investment. 
And I thought to myself, how funny it is, BlackRock Investment, which is one of the most woke investment corporations in the world, is being picketed by climate change. And I thought, these people are starting to eat their own. You see, if I were God, and you should be truly thankful I am not, I would have deep-sixed them long before these events. I mean, but I have to be reminded frequently, even in this day and age in which we live, that as Peter explained in 2 Peter 3.9, that the Lord is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I have to restate that in my mind oftentimes because God doesn't want anyone to perish. Even people that I think maybe should perish because of the wrongful things they do and the crazy and nonsensical things. When you live in an age where just the question of right and wrong has become a point of confusion, then it's easy to say, oh Lord, just take that person out. Get, just get rid of them. Remove them. And you know what, I don't mean that simply in a political sense because some of us have people in our own personal lives who have caused such betrayal and harm that we might give place to those kind of thoughts. Lord, my life would be so much better if they were just gone. I look at it differently. My life would be so much better if I were gone. <laughs> That's just a Christian point of view, right? But the whole point is that God suffers long. And, and it's even hard for us to grasp the emphasis of the original language, which means that, that God just never wearies of being gracious and per patient with you and me. The things that hit the limits of my bearability don't even affect God because God sees the beginning from the end. And ultimately, he wants everybody to be, to be saved. And I can't, again, emphasize how much we need to pray that God would help us understand his passionate towards, passion towards people who are so contrary to everything he believes. That we have a tendency to look at certain people saying, they've gone too far, they've, they're, they're irredeemable, they can't be saved. And I'm like you, I've had to be, especially recently, really kind of rebuked by the Lord to say, well, Lord... The world would be better off if they are not here. And I haven't heard him disagree with that, but he's always reminded me, but eternity is forever. Eternity is forever. And that I need to be praying, God, that whatever you do in their life and to them and however you address it, that the end result would be that they would bend the knee to the king they would have it come to Jesus moment. Because in many ways, when you look at a life that has been separated from God and it makes choices in order to find happiness and peace and usually that's a pursuit of power so you can control the world around you and therefore if you have all control, you feel like you're safe and yet even people like Stalin who had complete power or Hitler who had complete power never felt safe, felt constantly threatened. That's the lie, that's the illusion, but nonetheless... It all started, it all started with seeking to fulfill the great gap and ga gaping hole in our hearts with something other than God. And I would say that as a Christian, I wish that was no longer a temptation, but I find that we can be the same way. As my wife and I were listening to a, a teaching on the Old Testament last night, I, something struck me about the severity of God's dealing with mankind when I thought about the story of Abraham being told to offer his son Isaac, when I thought about Joseph being sold into years of slavery and bondage and hardship, when I thought about Job, and I, I just began to realize, Lord, there is a severity in the way that you deal with your people because sometimes it's the only way you can really bring forth the things that are most powerful. And it's the only way that we can come to this place where we suddenly realize, as the psalmist put it, whom do I have in heaven but you, Lord? And what do I desire on earth except you? It's not something that I get excited and wake up in the morning saying, I can't wait for the hardships that I'm going to experience today. They're going to show me that I have only God to rely upon. 
But there are those days, aren't there? And they will come to all of us in one way or another, and they're not designed to destroy us. They're not designed to bring us to some tragic end, but they're literally designed by God to bring us to the end of ourself so that we can begin to appreciate that we are complete in him. And I say this with a little bit of a tremor in my voice because I'm saying, Lord, uh, let that be in the last three moments of my life. (laughs) Don't let me be one who has to endure something for years and difficulties, and yet at the same time, who am I to counsel God? And worse yet, who am I to question God when he allows severe things He allowed severe things in the lives of many, and he may indeed do the same. As I was reflecting upon this long suffering of God with this family, it suddenly occurred to me how that God had been reaching out to them and giving them opportunity from generation to generation. When we start with a patriarch, Herod I, who's often called the Great, He was the one who had the opportunity to acknowledge the king of Israel at the birth of Jesus. He could have simply said, as he told the Magi, lead me to where he is so I can also worship him. He could have said that in sincerity, except he was blocked by the desire to be worshipped himself. Instead, he tried to kill Jesus rather than surrender a scintilla of his power to another king. And so his answer was to try to eliminate, as he always did, anything that was a threat to his power. His son Antipas (laughs) not only permanently canceled John the Baptist's Twitter account because he had the audacity to call out his sexual immorality in public, But when Pilate sent Jesus to appear before him because he was the ruler of Galilee, all he was interested in seeing if he could get a magic trick out of Jesus for his entertainment. That religious prophets were just there for mere entertainment value. His grandson, Herod Agrippa I, not only rejected the gospel, which he had by that time become well familiar with, but he's the one who had James the Apostle murdered. He imprisoned Peter with that same intention, and yet God intervened miraculously on the part of Peter. But shortly afterwards, God strikes him down. And as he's standing on the stage of the theater that's been rebuilt in Caesarea Maritima today, you can go stand on it as he's there receiving the accolades and the praise because he's wearing a silver gown that's reflecting off the sun. And they're saying, it's not the voice of a man, it's the voice of God. And he's going, well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and suddenly God struck him down and his, they said his bowels rotted out until they spilled out upon the ground. Five days of a cruel, painful, excruciating death. And he passes away inside of the very palace that Paul is now standing with his grandson and with his granddaughter. The same palace that his other daughter, Drusilla, who had been with Felix, all had lived. It's amazing to me how these things have a way of kind of coming together historically and you find that the same places become significant over and over again. That the singing of judgment was in the judgment hall in the palace in Caesarea. But it was not so much the judgment of men like Paul, but rather it was the judgment of this family and all of their co-conspirators. So that now as Paul is standing before this fourth and the last in the generation of Herods. Remember Exodus 34 to the third and the fourth generation. We are now coming to the fourth generation of the father's sins. And God is providing this young man and this young woman 
an opportunity to hear the gospel and to believe, to repent, and to be saved. I wonder how many times you heard the gospel before you heard the gospel. As I was thinking about that <laughs> this morning, I, it, it, I just began to go back in my own personal history. And I, I just remember at five years old, my, um, my, a friend of mine, schoolmate, took me to his church. And I sat in Sunday school with him. And I'm sure that they must have talked about the things of the Lord. Uh, I, I'm not positive. And I don't think it was the failure of the Sunday school teacher. I just remember she was incredibly frustrated with me because I was somewhat of a behavioral problem. I know that's hard to believe. But, you know, your kid's there. He doesn't have any parents to report him to. And he's just always doing things to usurp the attention and fill that empty ego need he had. You don't get it from your parents. You find it from someplace else. And usually you do it by committing problems. Actually, I went to Sunday school, I think, just about every Sunday, as far as I can remember. I just remember so clearly, I would go in and put in my little suit, because in those days, you didn't go anywhere without putting on a suit, and so you certainly didn't show up in church. with. And so my, I had these, this, this suit of clothing, that my, I put on my tie and the whole 10 yards, and I walk into the TV room, and my dad was watching TV, and he says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to church. He goes, here, here's a dollar, put it in the plate. So every Sunday he'd give me a dollar and I would, <laughs> I would put in the offering. I didn't know why. I, I just wished he'd just let me keep it. Because in those days, actually, it was worth something. But, and I remember doing that till I was 13 years of age. And I'm sure I heard the gospel. I just don't remember it. Because I don't know that I had a context for even grasping the idea that there was a God and somehow he was related to me. I was just doing this religious thing, a lot like the Herod family did. They, they had a form of godliness that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, a form of godliness, but they never had encountered its power. And I think that's a problem we have in, in American Christianity, certainly, and it exists in other countries where you have people who are nominal Christians. They, they have a concept of God or some kind of words about God that they've heard, but they've never encountered God in power. And those of us who have understand the very distinctness of the difference. That when the Holy Spirit of God begins to impact your life in a way that's really harder to handle than you really want. When you're exposed to things about yourself, you realize there is a God and, and that I am accountable to him and my life has run counter to what he wants and I'm a sinner. And if I die, I'm gonna lapse into a horrible eternal destiny. That's what it means to have, be touched by the power of God. When you know the power of God, that you know that your life is not defined by the moments that you spend here on earth as much as at that one moment when you bend the knee to God and you say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. That becomes the defining moment. That defines who you are. And you see, there are lots of people who talk about having a Christian religious experience. I mean, I can say from the age of five to 13, that's eight years, I probably went to church almost every Sunday. And I couldn't tell you anything about the Bible or about God or what it meant to be a Christian. And I don't think it was for want of trying. I'm sure there were people who really tried. I, I remember they, they, would, they would give us a prize, I remember, for being able to re come to church knowing a Bible verse. And I showed up this one Sunday, and, and the teacher, an elderly gentleman, I, I remember that, he was saying, okay, who can re recite a Bible verse? And everybody was reciting him, and he was giving them gifts of some kind. I don't remember what they were. And I realized at that moment I could recite the one verse in the Bible that I remembered. It's in the Gospel of John. Oh, not John 3.16. No, Jesus wept. <laughs> and I, he, he looked at me and goes, okay. <laughs> Jesus wept. <laughs> But it was years later before the Holy Spirit began to penetrate my heart in a way where I realized some very simple facts that I was a sinner and because of that I was in serious trouble and I needed to surrender my life to Christ. 
You see, what caught me atten- my attention was Paul's comment that this was not the first time that Agrippa had heard the gospel. When he says, you are well acquainted with all of the Jewish customs and controversies, Christianity was a very, very serious controversy. As the guy who superintends the temple and picks the high priest, he understood that the greatest threat they felt to the Jewish religion was Christianity, simply because so many people were embracing it, and it also because they taught that the ultimate sacrifice has been made through Jesus Christ, and all the rest is just ritual. He further goes on to say in verses 26 through 29, which we'll get to later on, he says, the king is familiar with all these things and I can speak freely. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was all done. It was not done, excuse me, in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? To which Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Well, history doesn't tell us whether he repented or not. As I said, that both he and Bernice were sent back to Rome, where they lived out the rest of their life in relative anonymity. But I often wonder if people could see their own futures if they would have made different decisions. I think we all suspect that we would have. If Agrippa and Bernice had known that it would be just five years from that point that their their kingdoms, that Jerusalem, the temple, all of that would be gone, that they would be sent back to Rome to live out their lives, their sad lives, as just really items on the social agenda for various feasts and events and and, and trying to keep out of the ire of any particular emperor who could execute them in a moment just like they had grown up as children. But they end up being historical has-beens with no lasting legacy whatsoever. They died alone. They both died childless. They had no heirs after them. They were the end of the dynasty. And doubtless, we would not even remember them at all were it not for this brief encounter with a prisoner named Paul. When you think about it for a moment and we think about people's major events in their life and defining moments and all those kinds of things we speculate about, how easy it is for us to miss the point that the most defining moment in a life that matters is the moment we accept Christ or a person chooses to reject Christ. It reminds me of an old joke I heard years ago. You've probably heard it, but heck, I never let an opportunity to tell a joke pass me by. Story about a man who was hiking one day and as he was coming along a cliff, he lost his footing and he began to slide down the cliff and he grabbed onto a tree that was sticking out from the side of the wall and he's hanging there and he starts calling out, help, help, is there anyone who can help? And no answer comes back. And finally he turns his eyes to heaven and he says, is there anybody up there? And he hears a heavenly voice saying, my son, trust me. Let go of the branch and I will catch you. And he pauses for a moment and he says, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) I thought that's the way we live our lives many times. Lord, I want you to rescue me, but can you do it in a manner and a way in a time which makes me look good and keeps me safe and doesn't cause any injury and maybe will lead to me getting that spot on television and I mean, we we have this thing that we are so, so woven into the culture that we're part of that it's hard for us to even think of our lives outside of that or finding meaning outside of that to be able to come to a place where I realize that my meaning, my fulfillment, my, the very essence of what it means to have personhood was summed up by Jesus saying, you must be saved again. 
I think so many of us today who are familiar with all the, what Jesus said with the Gospels, they may well, very well be convinced that that's the truth. Herod Agrippa II apparently was convinced. Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets, Paul said. But what have you done with that? You're living in incest? Obviously, it hasn't penetrated very deeply because that doesn't seem to be keeping you awake at night. Convinced, but not converted. There may be people who are good and moral, and they even decry the evil and the immorality that they see in the world, yet they have never surrendered. They've never bowed the knee to the king. They have a faith that may be outward, but it's not something that penetrates inwardly. They've conformed to a Christian or moral lifestyle, but have never submitted their life. They've never been transformed. And the word that Paul used when he used it in, in Romans 12, transformed, means he says, don't be conformed to the world. And that's interesting because there are a lot of options when it comes to being conformed to the world. I mean, we can conform in, in language, we can conform in cultural distinctives, we can conform in, in clothing, we can conform in, in a, a political point of view. But he says, uh, you know, those things, that, those things that affect our lives are all part of the parcel, but in the end, don't be just conformed to something that's visible but be transformed by what is invisible. And literally that word transform, as it's used there, means to be changed from one nature into another. It's why when Jesus said in John 3, 3, he says, I tell you the truth. I find myself underscoring that. <laughs> I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. In a day and age when the question is, is there such a thing as truth? Or whose definition of truth are you going to use? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I tell you the truth, he said further on. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Contrary to even some Christian theology, God does not send people to hell. Nor do people necessarily choose to go to hell. Oh, I've encountered a few smart Alex who said to me, well, I'm going to go to hell so I can be there with all my buddies. <laughs> okay. I just really, really try to assure them, you know, I, I understand. I, I once said some really stupid things before I was saved as well. But they don't choose to go to hell, but rather they choose not to go to heaven. And that's the point people often meant. They're going to go to hell. Why? Because they chose not to go to heaven. Jesus said there's a road and, and it, it forks. And he says one is a very narrow way and it leads to eternal life. And the other one is broad. You can be whatever and whenever and however. You can be he, she, her, it. It doesn't matter what pronoun you use. You can go down that road and what you'll find that the end of that road is eternal destruction. And I say that to this audience right now for a particular reason because I think sometimes we can get so caught up in the politics of the moment that we miss the real issue of what's eternal. That's why as last week I said your gun closet may be full but your prayer closet is empty. If there was ever a time for you and I as Christians to be pleading with God that he have mercy upon people and not just nations. That ultimately, if there is a red wave and we begin to find that uh, Assistant Attorney General of Health, Rachel Devine, is no longer in power and he's forced to dress like a man instead of a woman, we say, oh, thank goodness. But we're here because the church hasn't been the church. We're here because many Christians have 
men like the, the, grip, the Agrippa, they, they outwardly know this. They believe all this stuff, but they've never let it penetrate transformationally in their life so they live out their faith. They don't pray. They don't groan before God. That's why Jesus went on to say in John 3, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So when a person says to me, well, are you condemning me? I said, no, not at all. I have no right to condemn you. But Jesus said, you are already condemned. You've been condemned since the day you were condemned conceived in your mother's womb. The, from the moment that you were just simply a twinkle in your father's eye, you were already under condemnation. You were already, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, you were already an object of God's wrath. Ultimately, this is where you're going to end up unless you believe in Jesus. It's amazing how many people, even within the church, are trying to disprove that and how tragic that will be. I pray against the promotion of evil that's going on in our nation on every single level. And yet I pray more earnestly for something else, that there would come a great awakening within the church, that the church would humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn away from her wicked ways, that we would stop defining ourselves by nickels and noses and and we start defining ourselves by our faith in Christ and our commitment and our devotion to him alone. That the passion of our heart really is not God put a Republican in the White House. A passion of our heart is God set your foot upon earth and establish your kingdom upon the earth. Because until that happens, until Christ reigns, it, it's never going to be good. It's always going to go south. Now, I, I, I'll just leave it to you to guess how I'm going to vote in the next election. I, I try to keep that a mystery. But let's not be deceived into thinking that that's going to fix the deeper problems. That until we can humble ourselves before God and confess to Him in our hearts, God, we are... I'm a sinful man living in the midst of a sinful people, as Isaiah declared. Oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a nation of unclean people. Until we come to that place as followers of Jesus, we recognize that, God, you called me to do one thing, and that's to seek your face and to follow after you. That I can vote in alignment with what your word says, which is not wrong, but it isn't what I'm called to. I'm called to receive Jesus and to follow him with all my heart. Does the church need repair? I mean, seriously? I can, I can mention names because they publish their positions. I mean, when the United Methodist Church loses 30% of its denomination or churches because they endorse same-sex marriage and do not find any problems with transgenderism or anything of that nature, when the Presbyterian Church <laughs> publicly comes out and saying we're creating a new membership category, we have male, female, and transgender, bi non-binary gender fluid people, you just kind of define which one you are to become a member. I got to wonder, you know, I think about Woody Allen said so many years, I would never join a club that would have me as a member. I just sit there and say, and you know, here's the idea. We're saying, well, people will flood out and they'll lose all these people. And they are. People, their, their numbers are dropping like, well, it's kind of like rats running off a sinking ship. And that makes sense. But They've created these endowments and investment structures and stuff. They don't have to worry about the money because they have boatloads of it. So they don't really care, ultimately. Their ideology is such that they know they're secure. And so the hope isn't going to be that somehow that they will lose members and then 
become sorry and say, why does nobody show up at our building anymore? Because as we've seen with many religious churches around the world, they can, I've walked into cathedrals in Europe and there are 40 or 50 elderly women sitting there preparing for death on a Sunday morning in an auditorium that could seat 2,000 people. But it doesn't matter because their income is guaranteed. No, what has to happen is something deeper, more profound. What is needed in America is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God that brings a spiritual awakening to individuals of every kind, every stripe. You know, that God would go right past all of their pronouns and he would go right to the depth of heart and saying, there's a more serious fate awaiting you. And that fate is that you are condemned already. You're living this way because you are condemned and you need to repent and ask for God to forgive you so that you might be saved and you might experience what it means to be alive, really alive in Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to be clear in our minds that I don't want to diminish the importance of the election that is coming up. But also, Lord, help us not to overlook what is really really the problem. That it's not that the leaves are wilting, but it's because the roots are dying. And we pray, God, that we might be rooted and grounded in the truth of God, but also the love of God, that we might know you, and that we might begin to live our lives as people who are not just following you, but are in earnest pursuit of your will and your way that, God, we might be a people who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, committed to your truth, regardless of the world we're in, that you might give us that gospel boldness that we see in Paul when he's being tried and his very life is being threatened, and yet he's more concerned with the fate of a morally challenged king than he is his own fate that his love for that soul is greater than his own safety. I pray, Lord, that you'd somehow bring us to that same place, that when we pray and we decry the wickedness, when we become like Lot, who is vexed with the evil conversation of the Sodomites, that, Lord, we wouldn't just be vexed, but we'd be on our knees in prayer. We would be speaking and expressing our vote, that we would be moving in concert with your will, that we would do things that we might not otherwise even imagine we could do, but we're doing it because we feel compelled, as Paul said, by the Holy Spirit. That even for some to run for school boards or to become a precinct boss or just going and working down at the mission, or helping with the children. Lord, that we begin to respond to the needs around us because we are compelled by the Holy Spirit. That we don't stand back and righteously and morally condemn the wickedness without providing an answer to that condemnation, Lord Jesus. We pray that we'd be balanced to not have one without the other, but to have them both. We're not afraid to call sin, sin, also not afraid to say, but God came to save sinners of whom I was chief. We ask this of your Father in Jesus' holy name.